0: It's funny, uh, Kyle and I did not talk this morning. Kyle doesn't even know what I'm going to preach about this morning. Uh, he has no clue, and uh, we're, we're kind of in between series right now. We're starting a new series next week, uh, and it's the series is called Look. Um, if you remember, that is our strategy. Look up, look in, and look out. Uh, and we're going to be kind of going through that strategy over the next uh, seven or eight weeks starting tomorrow. But uh, this week, um, I, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk this morning about something that I've been uh, thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks, and uh, I guess I'll, I kind of want to start off by just reading you a passage of Scripture. So this comes, you don't need to turn there, don't worry about it, uh, and it's not, it's not on the screen, uh, it won't be on the screen because um, I did not put it in my notes. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, And if you recall, so in the first three chapters of Revelation, there's seven letters to seven different churches. Okay, letters uh, from Jesus uh, to the uh, seven different churches in the first century, Uh, and this is found in the letter to the church in Smyrna, which was in Asia. And here is what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. He says, "I know your tribulation and your poverty." and the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What would you do if that letter showed up at our church today? What would you do if a letter from Jesus showed up at our doorstep and informed us that we were about to enter into a period of suffering, of tribulation, that many of us were going to be thrown into prison, that some of us would be tortured, that it would last for a period of time, but? Uh, he encouraged us and exhorted us to be faithful unto death. Don't love our lives so much as to try to save them ourselves, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. How would we? How would you react? You don't need to answer out loud. Just think to yourself, how would you react if that letter showed up at the doors of our church? You know, as I, it just really struck me, that sentence at the end, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, what a powerful statement, number one. Number two, how heavy that would hit me if, you know, that letter was written to me, right? And here's the deal. In a way, it is written to us, right? Uh, this, the Scripture is written to us. I don't know what our future holds. Uh, but we are all called to be faithful unto death. And we are all promised the crown of life. You know, this this suffering like this is such a foreign concept to us. Um, yet, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, even today, this is a reality, right? This is something that they actually face. And as I, I thought about this concept of suffering for the sake of the gospel, I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul. And uh, as I was reading through the book of Acts, something struck me as I was looking at what made Paul's ministry tick. So, I, I don't, some of you may know this, some of you may not um, I like to write, um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I just never got it published because I don't really, I'm not confident enough in it, and so, um, and I'm, I'm working on starting another one, okay, and uh, part of it is centered around uh, Paul's ministry, and so I've been doing some studying, and, and what I found really just shook me and surprised me um, about what's, what's, what sets Paul's ministry apart, right? Uh, And So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a snapshot of Paul's ministry and specifically ask the question, what set Paul's ministry apart, and then we're going to flesh out that answer. Now, Paul's ministry had a global impact. I mean, everybody knows that, right? Like even many people who are not even Christians at all know about the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, We know that he planted at least 14 churches that we know of, and those are just the ones that are talked about in the New Testament. There were likely others, and he also trained many other disciples who went on to plant many other churches that we don't even know about, right? Um, So he had an enormous impact, uh, and uh, he was, I mean, quite simply a one-man wrecking crew when it came to taking the gospel into unreached areas, right? I mean, Paul was a beast, right? Now, there's a lot that we can learn from Paul, a lot that we can learn from him. I mean, his prayer life, the way he abided in Christ, right? Um. all kinds of things we can learn, his boldness. But the question that kept coming up was, what was unique about Paul's ministry? And I'll tell you what I think the answer is. I think the answer is suffering. I think the answer is his willingness to suffer. I think that's what set Paul's ministry apart. Now, I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. I want to show you, let me show you where I see that in Scripture because it's not just my opinion that matters. So uh, let me give you four things real quick to kind of set this up. I'm going to show you four places in Scripture where I see this. And I, I think that, uh, or I hope that you will uh, be convinced by the time I'm done. So number one, uh, the first reason I believe this is that the, the call to suffer was a part of Paul's commission. Okay. So if you, if you don't, aren't aware, before Paul was Paul, he was who? Saul, right, Saul. So he was a Pharisee right? Uh, He was a zealous uh, Jewish man who believed that righteousness was by the law, and if you asked him, he was quite good at it, right? He was quite good at keeping the law, and he believed that he was much better than other people, and he really despised and hated Christians, these people that worshiped this false Messiah named Jesus who had been nailed to a cross. He couldn't stand them, and he made it his mission in life to make sure that he stood up for God's name and killed or imprisoned every single one of these Christians that he could find. He traveled around trying to put an end to the Christian faith, right? And one day, uh, he got permission to go to Damascus because he heard that there were Christians that were multiplying in Damascus, and he wanted to go and put a stop to it. And so he went with his posse, and they started down the road to Damascus. And if you don't know the story well, he did not get very far because Jesus showed up and stopped him. While he was on the road to Damascus, All of a sudden, a bright light shines, and it blinds everybody there, right? And Paul falls to the ground, and he hears a voice, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And Saul, obviously, is profoundly impacted uh, by this event. And uh, Jesus, uh, through the vision, tells Paul, Saul, hey, I want you to let have your men lead you by the hand back to Damascus, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you what to do. You just wait there. And I want to read you what happens after that. Let me read you Acts 9, 13 to 16. So God goes to a man named Ananias, who's a Christian in Damascus, and he tells Ananias in a dream, Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to tell... Uh, I want you to go find this guy named Saul, and I want you to lay hands on him and heal him because he's blind. And Ananias is like, Whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> I've heard about this dude. He kills Christians. God, did you know that? Are you aware? So let me just read it to you. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." But the Lord said to him, "Listen, to, listen right here. Go." For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So two things in that commission. Number one, Paul is going to carry the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. And number two, Paul is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting that This is what God uses to sum up what Paul's ministry is going to be all about. Does that not strike you as interesting? Suffering. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, of all the things God could have said here, I mean, God could have said, I I will show him all the places he must go to carry the gospel, or I will show him all the people groups that he's going to need to reach, or I will show him all the proper doctrine that he must teach. No, no. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Perhaps suffering is a much bigger part of the Christian life and of ministry and missions than we thought. So, that's first reason. It's in his call. It's in his commission. Secondly, Paul appeals to his sufferings to defend his ministry. Uh, So, uh, in Corinth, uh, one of the churches that Paul planted in Corinth, there were false teachers that were rising up and saying that uh, their gospel was the right one, and they were basically slandering Paul and talking bad about uh, Paul behind his back because uh, of his weak appearance, right? He's, he wasn't a very, you know, strong speaker, and look at him. He'd gotten beat up so many times and all this stuff, and, and this guy's weak. We're strong. We're better uh, at speaking in public, and you know, we don't get, you know, beat, uh, in, you know, over the back, you know, with 39 lashes, things like that. And uh, they're boasting in their spiritual gifts and calling themselves super apostles. Uh, Paul even kind of uses that, that term. They, they say they're, we're super apostles. Paul's not really as good as us. And so listen to how Paul, writing to the Corinthians, defends his ministry and the gospel. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In Galatia, he does something similar. There's false teachers in Galatia saying that, uh, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised if you want to be saved. And they were discrediting Paul's ministry. Paul writes them at the end of the letter in Galatians 6:17, he says this. He's, he says, "From now on, don't let anybody trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars or the marks that show I belong to Jesus." He says, "You want to know the proof that my gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just look. Look at the marks on my body. Look at my back. It's raw from the beatings that I've taken. Look at my legs that have been whipped over and over and over again. Isn't that amazing that that's what Paul uses to defend his ministry is his sufferings. So it was a part of his commission. Paul used it to defend his uh, ministry. Next, suffering opened doors for Paul that otherwise wouldn't have opened. Uh, He clearly says that in Philippians one. 12 to 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, writing to the church of Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment was actually opening up more doors. For the advancement of the gospel that otherwise would not have been opened, right? I mean, we know of one story when he was in, uh, when he first went to Philippi and he gets thrown in jail and the, remember the story of the Philippian jailer, right? An earthquake comes and all the prison doors swing wide open and they could have left and the Philippian jailer goes to take out a sword to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners have escaped. And well, you just don't let that happen if you're a Roman guard because the penalty is death and Paul says, no, 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 wait, we're still, we're still here. And they literally stay in prison just so this guy doesn't get killed. And the guy says, what must I do to be saved? And his, him and his whole family get, get baptized. So here's the, here's the last piece of evidence that I believe suffering is what set Paul's ministry apart of the willingness to suffer. Suffering drew Paul closer to Jesus. Suffering drew Paul closer to Jesus. Uh, I get this from Philippians 3, 10, and 11 because Paul basically says it. Let me show you. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Suffering suffering for Paul was not just an accepted inconvenience. It was something that Paul saw as beneficial something that drew him closer to Jesus. Paul knew that he drew closer to Jesus, and he got to know Jesus better by sharing his sufferings with him. Uh, an example of this would be, uh, you know, I spent six years in the army, and we uh, I was deployed for a year for Operation Iraqi Freedom, and the guys that I went overseas with, we developed a close bond, right? A bond that I don't have with anybody else, because we suffered the same things together. We suffered 135 degree Fahrenheit days over and over and over, which would have been about pushing 50 Celsius day after day after day together. We suffered the monotony. We suffered the, the terrible smells. We suffered the unease of never knowing if our base was going to get, you know, bombed or mortared, things like that all the time, right? Like, we suffered that together, and so we built a bond, and that's something that I don't, I don't have with anybody else because... They haven't been through that with me. Does that make sense? I mean, you, uh, uh, perhaps maybe uh, if you've had a, a tragic event happen to you, uh, maybe you've lost a loved one, or maybe you've, 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 you've had a terrible you know, car accident or something like that, whenever you meet somebody who's had a similar experience, it's just easier to open up, right, and to empathize with one another, isn't it, right? And that's what, that's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3. So, suffering was a key component of Paul's calling, wasn't it? Would you guys agree with me if you're looking at those pieces of evidence? Now, here's the thing. Everything that we just talked about, right, is totally foreign to our culture in North America. Totally foreign. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor of the Village Church in Texas, great great preacher, he says this. He says, comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved and not a providence from God. I, I believe that comfort is one of the greatest idols that we have in North America. We, we have declared war on suffering and on pain. Uh, you can see it all around us. Um, you know, right now, uh, I mean, we've, we've, we, we despise discomfort and pain so much that we now have uh, many in the culture who are fighting for physician-assisted suicide because it would be better to die than to experience discomfort. Uh, we have uh, uh, marijuana uh, is being legalized for uh, medical purposes. Now, uh, you can sit there and tell me that marijuana doesn't affect you till you're blue in the face, but this dude smoked it for about five years, and I know what it does to you, and I know what it does to your brain, and it's not good, right? Um, so, you know, we, the point is, is we're willing to do whatever it takes to avoid pain, right? Anything, anything to avoid pain. The, uh, the pain pill industry, do you know it's a $5 billion a year industry? $5 billion a year. And you know it's resulted in one of the, one of the greatest opioid epidemics we've ever seen? Just a couple months ago, I sat, um, sat with a friend in his living room while he tried to detox off of heroin. And he sweat uncontrollably, and he shook, and he writhed around in pain while I held his hand and read psalms to him. And while I've watched what it does to people's bodies and to people's minds, and, and we prescribe this stuff to anybody just just to get away from the pain. Comfort is our God and our culture. And here's the deal. If we're honest, this has kind of seeped into the church as well, right? It has. It, it's partly not our fault, okay, because we've been born into a specific place at a specific time. We live in an affluent place, right? Right? We are blessed in that regard. We're blessed in Canada and the United States of America to have a place where we all have roofs over our head for the most part. We have food, right? We have heaters. We have vehicles, things like that. And so uh, we're blessed. We're not thrown into jail uh, for believing in Jesus or for preaching the gospel because we live in Canada and it's 2018. Uh, So it's not illegal to do those things here like it is in other parts of the world. So it's not totally our fault that we just don't suffer for the gospel here, right? Part of it's just because this is where we were born, and we can't do anything about that. But on the other hand, it partly is our fault. It partly is our fault. Because let's be honest, we all find subtle ways to avoid suffering for the gospel at times, right? To avoid having to get a little uncomfortable, right? Like, maybe we decide not to speak up to that family member that we know they need to hear some biblical truth, but we just decide, mm, I just don't want to deal with it today. Or maybe we decide we're not going to really be that vocal at work about my faith because what if I lose my job or what if people ostracize me, right? We, we find little ways to do that at times. Uh, as, I, as I observe church as a whole, uh, the, the, the church in North America as a whole, I'm alarmed at how easy we've made it seem in our culture to be a Christian. I'm not talking specifically to everybody here. I know many of you uh, are not um, uh, doing what's called, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, right? Like just this easy believism stuff and like, oh, it's easy to follow Jesus. You don't have to give up much. I know that most of you in here, that's not your experience. But as a whole, in the church in North America, I see that. Because here's the deal. Like Jesus... The New Testament scripture pretty clearly tells us that we can expect to suffer if we decide to follow Jesus. Here's a a few passages. Matthew 10.22, Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You're going to be hated for my name's sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, I mean, this really kind of lays it out. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody. So what that's telling us is that it is impossible to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and to make it through this life unscathed by persecution. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Acts 14.22, Paul, uh, after they planted some churches in, uh, in a couple of cities, they go back through and, uh, to encourage them because they were uh, already starting to experience persecution, and he, he reminds them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's not reflective of most of our experiences, though, here, uh, is it? We don't uh, don't usually experience many tribulations um, as we follow Jesus here in North America. And yet, it's a guarantee. Here's the deal. I believe that we're missing out in, um, in in a large way on the good life because we've lost our theology of suffering. I think we've lost our theology of suffering here in North America, and what I want to accomplish is to maybe start you back on the road towards recovering it. I'd like to start you back on the road towards recovering it because I believe that our lifetime, in our lifetime, it's going to be uh, harder and harder to become a follower of Jesus. Just looking at the way that culture is trending uh, and the alarming rate at which culture is becoming more and more hostile to biblical truth, uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we're talking in the last 10 years, we've seen some Amazing things happen in terms of unbelief. If you just look at the statistics, it's pretty crazy. Um, and so, I don't want Fellowship Oshawa entering that season with fear, because we don't have to. We just don't have to. Uh, I want to see. I want you to see the great blessings that accompany suffering. And so, kind of the latter half of this message, here's what I want to do. I want to give you. Uh, I want to share with you what the future rewards are for suffering for Jesus, and the present rewards. There are rewards to look forward to, and there are rewards right now uh, when we suffer for Jesus. So let's start with future, okay? I don't think anybody could lay this out any better than Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12 in the Beatitudes. Here's what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, that seems like a strange statement, does it not? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. What? Why Why is it a blessing to be persecuted? Rejoice and be glad. Really? Rejoice? Rejoice? Why do I want to throw a party for getting mocked or for getting rejected or for getting thrown into jail? Why in the world, Jesus, would that be worthy of throwing a party over? That does not make sense. Well, the reason that persecution is a cause for celebration is because verse 12 says, Your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Jesus can say this to us, and the Apostle Paul can say something similar, and Peter says it in the book of 1 Peter, because they knew that the reward and comfort in heaven that awaits those who suffer for Christ will erase all memory of suffering. It'll just totally erase it. The rewards will be so great, will so far outweigh any suffering we could possibly endure in this life that it won't even enter into our minds when we step into glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 puts it like this. says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weights of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to, but to the things that are unseen. Let me give you a, kind of help maybe put a picture to this. Let me give you a, a picture of what this looks like. From Acts chapter five, Acts five, Peter and John, okay, they are preaching the gospel in the temple, and the Pharisees, the the uh, the Jewish leaders, tell them to stop. And they warn them. They go, "If you guys don't stop, uh, we're going to arrest you, and we're going to hurt you." Well, they don't stop. They just keep preaching the gospel because they're like, "We can't. We have to obey God, not man." Right? So they get uh, they arrest them. They bring them before the tribunal, and they, uh, they end up, you know, scolding them and everything, and then they take them and they beat them uh, with whips. They, they flog them, uh, and then uh, they decide to release them after warning them again, next time you're not going to get away with this, with just a flogging, basically. And look at their reaction. Listen to their reaction in Acts 5, 41. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Imagine this scene. They, they These guys just get beat with a whip, with the cat of nine tails, probably 39 lashes, just like Jesus got. And they come bounding out of the presence of the high council, giddy like a bunch of teenage boys who just got to meet their favorite NBA basketball player. Dude, can you believe it? That was awesome. We just... We just got beat for the name of Jesus. Can you believe that that he counted us worthy to suffer dishonor for the name? Wow. That just seems like such a counterintuitive reaction, does it not? A counterintuitive reaction to getting beat. Here's why I think some of us have a hard time with that, because I know you're seeing that story and you go, that's a neat story, but it's still hard to wrap your mind around how we could possibly think that way. And, and look at suffering that way. I think our problem is with our view of heaven. I think that's one of our big problems. I think that we have a faulty view of what heaven is like, mainly because the church has done a pretty bad job of teaching on what heaven is, and what the new heavens and the new earth is like. I think we try to be as comfortable as we can here, because we don't really believe that it's actually going to be good. We try to be comfortable here because we don't really believe it's actually going to be that good there. We don't really believe what Paul said in Philippians 1, that to die is gain. We fear that to lose earth and gain heaven is actually a net loss. But that's not what Scripture tells us. I mean, what did Jesus say? He said, what do you have if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Nothing, right? I can't have my my hands chopped off. Here on earth, I'll, I'll never have another pair. That's not true. If you're in Christ. That's not true. Here's the deal. It's kind of a reminder. This is not what this sermon's about, but I want to give you a, a picture. Jesus, when Jesus returns, Scripture tells us that this earth in its current form is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be recreated. It's going to be destroyed. Everything evil wicked, every consequence of sin is going to be burned away, and it's going to be recreated in its perfect state, similar to Eden, right? There's going to be no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering. We're going to have an actual earth where we dwell on. You are going to have a body, real physical body. You'll, we'll be able to pinch each other. We'll be able to high five, except it's going to be a glorified body. Your back's not going to start to hurt from deadlifting too much weight, right? You're not going to get pimples. You're not going to get old and wrinkly. That's just not going to happen. You're going to have a glorified, perfected body. There's going to be work to do. Remember, there was work in the Garden of Eden, right? Except that this time, it's not going to be laborious work where we don't want to go anywhere anymore, but it's going to be joyful work. The crops are never going to fail. There's never going to be a hailstorm that comes and ruins our crops. There's never going to be a drought. It's just always going to be perfect. There's going to be creatures to tend to, but we're not going to have to be afraid of them because the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. There's going to be people to be in relationship with. There will be relationships. We will see each other in the flesh, in the new creation, forever, except we're never going to get sick of each other. We're not going to fight. There's not going to be injustice. There's not going to be jealousy. There's not going to be any of that stuff. And best of all, we're going to be in the presence of our Creator. He's going to walk with us and talk with us. We're going to have every question we ever had answered. Every desire that you've ever had is going to be fulfilled to the max in a way that you cannot possibly even begin to understand. That is reality. I was was debating on whether to share this with you, but um, I was was meditating a lot on this last week, and, and I'd encourage you to maybe do the same. Meditate on what? The new heavens and the new earth are going to be like within the bounds of scripture don't go crazy and like start doing unbiblical stuff but here's the deal i can 't tell you everything about heaven because we only know what scripture tells us right uh, but I can tell you it's going to be far better than I could ever possibly explain far better you know i i don't know if um, I don't know if this is something that we can actually do but I kind of think I can and I, and I got this idea from Matt Carter, who's the pastor of the church I used to attend in, in Austin, the Austin Stone. and uh, You know, one of the things I've started praying is I'm asking God, uh, I want to be a farmer in the new heavens and the new earth. I want to have crops to tend to because those will be there. And you know what else I want to do in the new heavens and the new earth? I want to explore. You know it's going to be incredible when we get there? You know, we were at Ripley's uh, Aquarium in downtown uh, Toronto uh, a few weeks ago, and when you go there, it's just unbelievable looking at these creatures and you just, like, I couldn't help but just worship God while I was there. Like, how did you come up with this? These things are like the sea anemones and stuff like that. You're like, what? Like jellyfish that glow in the dark and all this crazy stuff. And these are like live creatures and just unreal. And, and then I, I was struck by a, a stat there that, that said, we've only, we've only explored 5% of the ocean floor. 95% hasn't even been explored yet. There's so much more out there that we don't even know. Like, we think we've uncovered some of God's greatness in creation. We haven't even begun. And then I thought, what's it going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth? Dude, I mean, we're going to explore forever. And because God is infinite, we're never going to run out of amazing things to discover. And, and we're going to, uh, so I know I'm going to go throughout the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm going to look at the new plants And I'm going to discover the new creatures. And every time I see one, my heart's just going to rise up and worship to God. And and he's going to be walking with me through the cool of the garden. And I'll be able to ask him, how did you make it? And he'll be able to answer me. And it will just go on day after day after day. And it will never get old. And it will never end. Listen, I, I share all that with you to say this. Look not to the things that are seen. How do we get a theology of suffering that doesn't despair in the face of danger, that doesn't despair in the face of persecution? We keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things below. We believe the promises of God in Scripture. We recognize that, that this is real. That, <laughs> like, to die really is gain. It's not a net loss. Like, that, the song we were singing, It Is Well, Right? That last verse, you know, I love the second verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, uh, you know, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But then that last verse, the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Guys, that is the moment when we enter into this. That's why we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I want to be there. I want to be there so bad. And I can't wait for that day. The only reason I wouldn't want to is because there's still a lot of people that don't know Jesus, and there's still a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel. That's why I'm leveraging my life to do this for the rest of my life. Nothing else matters. This life is so short, so short, we have eternity to look forward to. So that's the future rewards. I feel like I, would, I, sh- I don't even really need to give you more rewards. Like, that should be good enough, right? Like, but there's more. But wait, there's more, like an infomercial. Not really. Here's a couple of present rewards. Number one, sin will lose its grip on you. Sin will lose its grip on you. When you begin to embrace suffering, sin will lose its grip. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 2 says this. It says, so then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your days chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. So what does sin say to us? What is sin's message? Sin says, save yourself, serve yourself, worship yourself. But when you can look at sin and say, no, I will serve Christ even if it means pain to my body, that's when the power of sin has been broken in you. When you can look at the face of sin and say, no, not doing it. I don't care how much pleasure and comfort you offer me. I'm going to serve Christ. Sin doesn't have power over a man and a woman who can say that to temptation. It doesn't. That's what Peter means when he says that you have finished with sin if you've suffered physically for Christ. Secondly, we're brought closer to Jesus. I kind of already covered that, but when we suffer with Christ, is if you want to know him more, you want to you know Him, and, and you want to know the power of Christ? Then be willing to suffer with Him, and you will. I can just uh, tell you from experience and, and also just from observation, and I'm sure many of you would agree, uh, we see in parts of the world where people are suffering for the gospel, there's just more cool stuff happening <laughs> when it comes to the church, right? I mean, where in the world right now is the church exploding? Anyone Anybody know? China, where else? You know, you know what? Who knows which country uh, that uh, has the fastest growing church right now in the world? Hmm? No? No? Iran. North Korea is close. Iran. India is also very fast. Iran. It's illegal to be a Christian in Iran. Did you know that? You know what they do to you if you convert from Islam to Christianity in Iran? Anybody know? Anybody know? Yeah, they cut your head off. And yet it's the fastest growing church in the world. Explain that to me. Do they just have really good marketing? Do they have really great flyers? Do they have awesome worship music at the worship services? No. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit transforming the hearts of men and women there. That's it. That's what it is. That's what it is. We see the power of God moving in incredible ways where people are willing to suffer with Jesus. Number three it accentuates the value of the gospel when we are willing to embrace suffering it accentuates the value of the gospel here's what I mean by that that word accentuate um it's I think it's like a like a decoration design word or something like that um, like uh ladies help me out how would you describe accentuate like if you had a if you had like a uh, like a necklace that accentuates your heightens it right yeah yeah kind of like that it heightens it so so when we're willing to suffer with Jesus, it accentuates the gospel. Here's what I mean by that: a gospel that we are not willing to suffer for does not appear valuable to other people. If it's not even worth it to you to suffer for it, then what you're communicating non-verbally to others is that it's not that great. I mean, I mean, it's great, but I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't want to get rejected for it. I don't want to get my hands chopped off for it, right? But here's the deal: many people they think that if we make the gospel and as easy as possible to follow, then more people will. That's kind of the, the what we've been trying to sell people in North America, right? Let's just make it as easy as possible to follow Jesus and more people will do it. But is that happening? No. We're going in the opposite direction right now. We're going in the opposite direction. Again, the, the places that the church is exploding are where the cost is high to follow Jesus. The cost of discipleship is real. Um. Mike told this story, I think, a few weeks ago about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, the guys, uh, five missionaries that went to Ecuador, right? And they were ministering to uh, some native tribes there, and they wanted to go to the Alcas, which were very, very violent people. And uh, one little nuance of this story uh, was that when they were boarding the plane, uh, when it, before that fateful day, uh, when they were speared to death, uh, they were boarding the plane to get on. And, um, and I think there's a picture of them behind me, by the way, uh, if you got them. Yeah. So, um, Jib Elliott right there on the left, and then Nate Saint is there in the middle. I know it's kind of hard to see. And then one of the other guys on the right. They're boarding the plane, and Nate Saint's son asked him, um, will you use the gun if they attack? They had one gun. They had one sidearm. Will you use the gun if they attack? Here's what Nate, Nate said to his son. He said, son, we cannot shoot them if they attack. They aren't ready for heaven. We are. And attack, they did. You know the story, all five men lost their lives at the hand of the Alcas that week as they were speared to death, trying to bring them the good news of Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the story, because seeing the way that they died and the way that their wives and their family members responded to that persecution with love, almost that entire village ended up coming to know Christ through that episode, almost the entire village. Why was that? It's because Jim Elliot and Nate Saint showed them that they actually believed this good news they had was true because they were willing to die for it. They showed them the value of the gospel by being willing to embrace suffering. Are you? Are you willing to embrace suffering? I don't mean theoretically. I mean right now, today. If you're willing to lose your life, Are you willing to lose your comfort, your reputation, your job? What would happen if, as John Wesley once said, our little church became a church full of people that feared nothing but God and hated nothing but sin? What do you think that would do to our city if we had a church filled with people like that? I just want to close out by giving you a couple points of application and then we're done. Okay? How do we embrace suffering today, all right? Number one, uh, don't seek it out. Don't seek it out. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should go looking for martyrdom, okay? I'm not saying that you should go into the local atheist club and go, all of you people are going to hell, and then just stand there waiting to see what they're going to do to you. No, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Jesus did. Look, Jesus, the apostles, they didn't have to go seek out persecution, did they? I mean, all Jesus did was (laughs) be himself, right? he just was the truth and you know the darkness hates the light and so they responded in kind and we're we're blessed to live in a place where we can worship safely and comfortably and we should praise God for that we have the opportunity to do things like send out flyers and you know hold rallies and hold public worship services and invite people in without being afraid that we're going to go get reported to the secret police because of it but what i want us to do is this i just want us to hold that comfort with open hands and not, not cling to it as our greatest good. If God wants to take it from us, let Him have it. Hold it with open hands. But gratefully, with grateful open hands. Thank you for allowing us to have this right now. But if you choose to take it, not my will, but yours be done. Right. So number one, don't seek it out. Number two, don't avoid it. Okay. Don't want, We don't need to seek out suffering on purpose. Try to go be a martyr tomorrow, but don't avoid suffering either. Embrace it. So what does it look like to not avoid suffering in a place where there's very little physical persecution? What does that actually look like in Canada? It makes sense in India, but what does it look like here? I think that embracing suffering starts with living and looking more like Jesus Christ. It starts with living and looking more like Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal, the more like Jesus you look, the more like Jesus you will be treated. The more like Jesus you look, the more like Jesus you'll be treated. And how was Jesus treated? Yeah. Ultimately, he was murdered, right? He was murdered. Here's the deal. When you live righteously, it's a reminder to others that they're not, right? Um, When you live righteously, honestly, quite honestly, you're you're a walking rebuke of those who are refusing to live righteously. When you walk by faith and you profess faith in God, you are a walking rebuke for those who know instinctively the truth about God because they see the evidence all over in creation, but they're denying it. And so you are a reminder to them every time you show up, even without saying a word, that they are suppressing the truth of God. And so the only reaction you're going to get to that is hostility, right? Which is why even you, you don't have to go around and preach to get persecuted. Now, it doesn't, I'm not, we're supposed to, you know, to, to share the gospel and things like that, but you just follow Jesus and live like Jesus and look like Jesus, it's going to come, right? It will come. John Piper said this, he said, I take it to be a biblical truth that the more earnest we become about being the salt of the earth, in the light of the world, and reaching the unreached peoples of the world, and exposing the darkness of the world, and loosing the bonds of sin and Satan, the more we will suffer. I can personally attest to the truth of this. Um, We've experienced more backlash, more hostility over the past one and a half years of our lives, me and Jen, than I ever had combined in my previous 30 years, by far. By far more backlash and hostility, especially over the past year. A lot of that spiritual warfare, but a lot of that is that the darkness and the light don't mix, guys. It doesn't, right? But what are we called to do in response to that? We're called to continue to take that light into the darkness. And if they kill us, they kill us. I've got I've got the resurrection. Doesn't matter. Just like Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, put a spear in me. Make my day, martyr maker, like John Piper says. I'll be, with, I'll be in glory just like that, right? There's a, an Asian country that is unnamed, and um, it's, it's a high persecution area, and they have seven questions for new converts that they actually ask them before they baptize them. Here's the seven questions that they ask them. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Here's what I want to communicate. They are not held to a higher standard than you or I are. Their call to discipleship is the same as ours. It's the same as ours. Can you say yes to those seven questions? I mean, could, could, could you sign up for that? Would you say yes for baptism? If those were the seven questions that were asked you. If you want to make a difference in this world, I mean a real difference, say yes to those seven questions and mean it. There is no limit to what God can do through a man or a woman who does not even regard their own lives as something to hold on to. And church, we have the privilege of being able to do that. We have the supply of hope to be able to say that. And here's why. is the last thing. Uh, don't, avoid, uh, don't seek out suffering. Don't avoid suffering. And don't fear it. Don't fear suffering. We don't have to fear suffering for the name of Jesus. Why? Because we have the resurrection. We have the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the guaranteed resurrection of our bodies, that future glory that we were talking about earlier that we are going to enter into, because of that, we don't have to fear anything or anyone. Nothing. Nobody. I don't know what the future holds for us here in Canada or in the U.S. We can look at the signs of the times and we can, uh, you know, we just don't know for sure. I can say that um, I believe in my lifetime. Um, It's going to be much, much harder and the cost is going to increase to be a follower of Jesus here in our area. But here's my prayer for you this morning. My prayer for you is that you would resolve right now before that time comes to embrace suffering for the name of Jesus if that's what God calls you to do. Willingness to suffer set Paul's ministry apart, and I pray that it sets us as a church apart in the days to come.